everybody. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Chas asked me how long Genesis would take. I was like, well, there's 50 chapters, and we can take about five verses and go 45 minutes on each verse. So this is going to take us a while. No, I'm just joking. Um, the, the intent, the plan, um, is to really look at Genesis 1 through 11. Um, that's going to take us a, a couple of months to do that. And then we're going to, like I said, we're going to take a, a break. We're going to be in Psalms for a little bit while we kind of transition. You know, summer, summer months are always kind of a, a great time when everybody, and it's good that families are in and out. And, and so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of be in Psalms and Proverbs there at the end as everybody is ramping back up for school and um, how that changes all of culture. Um, all the rhythms change. And then we're going to go back to Genesis 12 through 50. Now in 12 through 50, what we're going to do is we're going to really look, there's, there are going to be some reading assignments um, to, to kind of help you out. And so, you know, we might be preaching Genesis 12 through 15 in one sermon because that's, that's Abraham and, and the, his covenants. So it's going to be helpful for you to read Genesis 12 through 15 coming in. And we're going to definitely have the scripture throughout. Uh, but, but it's not going to be read the entire 12 through 15 whenever we gather and then break it down verse by verse. So it's going to be a little bit different rhythm. Um, but we're going to look at, at narrative strands um, of the patriarchs and, and really the foundation. So the, the end, whenever we say 12 through 50, that doesn't mean, you know, 38 different chapters on their own. Uh, some of those will be combined. Sometimes there's going to be I'm thinking of the scene of, of Abraham and Isaac and the, the sacrifice. Um, that's, that's one sermon right there because there's a richness in the text. So um, that's kind of the, the plan for Genesis. I'm excited about it. Um, Bo and I had been talking, and this was a while back, about, man, how, how neat would it be with a, with a church like ours who, who treasures and values the Word to go back to Genesis and really just begin to look at Genesis because a lot of, well, all that we proclaim in the New Testament is rooted in Genesis. And if you ask me, like, you know, if Jackson says, okay, Dad, I, I'm going to start studying the better. I'm gonna, I want to have a good quality time. Like, what do I need to read? And I'm, I'm looking at him right now and he hasn't been in the Word in a while. I'm going to say go to the New Testament, all right, because that's, that's where I want him to, to, to pour in and be refreshed. But we cannot neglect the Old Testament because as we know the New Testament and then you look back at the Old Testament, oh my, it's just rich. In the 90s, we had these things called magic eye pictures. They were the posters of the random uh, patterns and then they even had books and you stare at this random pattern forever and ever and ever and then you kind of cross your eyes and then you uncross them and you go back and forth and all of a sudden there's a sailboat. But once you see the sailboat, you can't unsee the sailboat. You don't have to retrain your eyes to see the sailboat. Whenever you see Christ glorified in the New Testament, and then you look back in the Old Testament, and you, and you really do the back and the forth and the, the crossing of the eyes, and, and you, you look at the Old Testament, you see that God has been doing redemptive work all throughout. You see pictures of Christ all throughout. You see Him faithfully fulfilling all that He has said He would do all throughout. And it all begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I got the, the honor of preaching at Cross Life Russellville several, several years ago, whenever I was an elder there, and I got to preach on Noah's Ark. And one of the first things I told them to kind of set the context of, of some of Genesis 1, 1, is that Noah's Ark 
is really interesting. It's, we, we open children's Bibles and there's, you know, there's a happy giraffe with its head hanging out and it's smiling and every, you know, everything seems joyful on the ark. And it wasn't. I mean, Noah's ark and the, the global flood, that's a story of God's condemnation and his justice on a wicked world. I mean, it's actually makes for a great nursery theme, but it's actually a pretty dark, hard story. But a remnant, few, were saved in, in the ark. And then we can see that that's exactly what God does with Christ, a Savior, on the cross. And there's that ark that we flee to, which is Christ. I mean, we see these parallels all throughout. It's as though there's this all-wise, all-knowing God who said, this isn't just a story, but from beginning of creation to the end, I'm going to start with simple things so that you can understand the depth of them later. And I think that the more we read the Old Testament and the more we know of Christ, we look back and we go, wow. Like the story of Jesus is, is amazing. And God was sowing the seeds of it all throughout Scripture. Really, in Genesis 1-1, and we're going to see the first, um, the proto-evangelicum in, in Genesis chapter 3. That's the first time that God said, oh, there's a Messiah coming. And so from Genesis 3 to like Revelation uh, 22, it's all about the coming Messiah. And then he will finally be with us. And we see his eternal reign there at the end of Revelation. So I, it's pretty neat. And it all starts with in the beginning, right? So that's why we're there is whenever we talk about being children of Abraham, that means a lot. That means a whole lot more than we just have faith. It means something really rich. Whenever we're, uh, whenever we're looking at, as we did Jonah, and we move through the Old Testament, we understand that, that that's, that's really applicable to us. It's not just a, a story of a prophet. It was pretty messed up, but a story of a prophet. Y'all, it's in Genesis that we first learn of God. I mean, in the beginning, God. There's no defense of God. There's no explanation of God. There's no need of any of that. There's just simply God, right? So we first learn of God here. It's in Genesis that we actually first learn of who we are and our purpose. And we're going to take a, a pretty quick glimpse of that today. We learn of our depravity and where sin came from and why there's so much heartache and brokenness in the world. It's in Genesis that we first learn of the coming Messiah. And it's in Genesis that we see God's sovereign election and determining to do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, because he wants to do it. We see all of that beginning in Genesis. It's in Genesis we see the first sacrificial lamb that we will see fully in Christ Jesus. Like that's all of that's layered into Genesis. We get the first taste in Genesis of what it's like for God and man to be together with no fear and no worry. Like perfect union, completely his. That's in Genesis. It's in Genesis that we first witness the mercy and the grace of God when Adam and Eve sin, God clothes them. Like he doesn't just utterly cast them out for messing up everything that's totally good. But we see the first glimpse of his mercy and grace. And it's in Genesis that we first see that God has always been about redeeming a people for himself. So all of that's in Genesis. It's really, really exciting whenever we get down to it. And all the fruit of the gospel that we glory in and that we sing about and that we delight in and that we rest in, that we find refreshment in, all of that has its roots in the pages of Genesis because it all begins there. Okay, so I'm pretty excited. Okay, so take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Sorry. 
That's not Genesis. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we're going to start in 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 21. Because I think that this is incredibly important for us as believers in the day and the culture in which we live. So 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 21. Peter writes, For no prophecy, and this is referring to Scripture, by the way. So no prophetic word, no Scripture. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm putting this here because I fear that we have a certain esteem of the New Testament and how the Holy Spirit carried these men to, to pen the words of the New Testament. And we don't apply that same esteem and high regard to the Old Testament. So as I'm talking to believers, there's this... There's a, a strand of thought that might come out of, well, it wasn't really a worldwide flood because the only part of the world that they knew, like that was their world. Me? Moses didn't write all of this with his limited knowledge, but this has all been co-authored by the Holy Spirit that carried him along. God knew the vastness of everything. So he moved Moses to write these words in, in the first five books of the Old Testament not through Moses' limited knowledge, but through God's vast knowledge that he funneled through Moses. And so it's just good to kind of keep that there because there is this kind of, a, kind of strain of thought that, well, they were just simple and they didn't quite know. But now we are enlightened and we know. Y'all, compared to the wisdom of God, we know nothing. And God will use the foolishness of the world I'm sorry, the wisdom of the world and show them that they are full, foolish and he will use the foolishness of what we profess to make his wisdom known. So you might say, as we're looking at Genesis 1 and, and, and throughout going, yeah, but it, I, I, I don't understand how it all fits together. Y'all, you don't have to. Know the Son. Know God is true. We are not going to recognize and reconcile everything in this world because his mysteries are entirely, entirely too deep. So I want us to esteem all that we read with that same authority, the same Holy Spirit that moved men to write is the same Holy Spirit that sustained us. It's the same Holy Spirit that's within us so that we can comprehend as much of God's word as possible. And we're still never going to get it. I, I believe that the depth and the wisdom and the goodness and grace and mercy and all that God is, is so infinitely beyond us that even whenever we were, are with him, forever and forever and forever, face to face, I believe we will spend all of eternity seeking to know him more and delighting in the fact that there is no end. Like, we will be redeemed, but we're just going to keep swimming in all that he is. I just think that's amazing. Okay, in this book then, Cross Life, here's what we have. We have the history of creation. We, we kind of know that in Genesis 1. We have the history of mankind, and we have the history of redemption. We do not have the history of God. Because God predates history. There is no history that can go far enough back and reach God at his beginning because there is no beginning of God. That is the unanswerable question that drives our kids crazy. Okay, before God, what was there? God, right? So there's no history of God in this book. There's a history of God acting in this book. All right, so here is what I also want you to grasp and then... Then we're going to keep moving closer. Um, Genesis 1 is not a science book. 
And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of people who, and I think well-intended apologists, they, they go to Genesis 1 and, and they, they, they have the scripture and then they bring in science. And I love science. I'm a nerd. Like I love hearing about these new planets that they're discovering. And I, I love all of that. But Genesis 1 was not written as a science textbook to explain how God did everything. You know how he did it? He made it. That's, that's what we know. That's all we need to know. And if we need more, then I think we totally missed it. Here's the point of Genesis 1, like in its most simple, watered-down, ricky form. God created everything, and it was good. Like, that's it. That's the, that's the nuance of all the text. And my fear is, is that we today stand in, in constant danger in modern Christianity of becoming numb to the most amazing things of God. Like, we just miss it. Like, we're just numb. We become numb to the amazing things of God, and, and I fear that the, the mighty God no longer moves us enough. We always need more. And we look at the miracles, we're like, that's amazing, that's awesome. Next chapter in my quiet time. Right? We, we read it and we're like, oh man, that's cool Jesus did that. He, he walked on water because he's Jesus. Okay, and then we just pray so quickly. Like, I think that there is such praise in awe of God. Like, you can just, you, you read it and you don't have to rush to the words in your prayer. You just look at it and you stand in awe and that is due and fitting and honorable to stand before God in that way. So we had a, we had a, an international student who came through Union a couple of years ago, and, and at homecoming, uh, they, they walk out, they announce who their parents are, what they've been involved in the school, and then their favorite verse. And um, this international student's favorite verse was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, this was a student who come from, I believe he was from Vietnam. And uh, we have about 10 international students who've been coming to our campus every year for the last two to three years. God's just drawing them. And we, we've started a, an international Bible class that's specifically for them. Um, they're not in there with, their, with the other juniors and the seniors. That, like, there's, they're in their own international Bible class. And we started this two years ago. And the, what we do in international Bible classes, we start in Genesis 1 and we walk them to Genesis 11 because they're the core doctrines really of all that we believe bound up in that. A creator God, sinful man, a, re, a coming redeemer, a God covenanting to redeem his people. And so the student had been walking through that. And, and the student is not the only one. Um, so let, let me hit time out there. Uh, one student from Spain called me right before she had to leave the country because of COVID. And she had accepted the Lord as her savior because of that international Bible class of walking through Genesis 1 through 11. So there is now a new sister in Christ in Spain who's leading her family and discipling them in Spain because the gospel and the word does the work that it's going to do. And then we're hearing similar stories uh, of students who are coming from Buddhist backgrounds who are just looking at Genesis, understanding what we believe at the very, very core of who God is. And they are, one of them even uh, said the other day, he's like, I'm so close. And they're excited. So this student... His favorite verse was, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one of our other students kind of laughed and said, of all the Bible, of everything you've been exposed, that's your favorite verse. And now listen to this. The, the international student said, you don't understand. Before I heard that verse, I didn't even know that there was a God. And I didn't even understand where everything came from. 
And that one verse changed his entire world. And we read it and we're like, well, of course, that's what God does. So my prayer coming in this morning was that, that God would help us to read it anew and that we would be in awe and amazement of all that he has done. The title of this sermon is simply, In the Beginning, God and God Alone. Like, that's it. Just, it's God. That's what we're going to focus on. Um, we're going we're gonna to read the text in its entirety, but try to, uh, and I, I pray that God is so good to let us just simply hear it brand new, not as having read it to so many kids and so many children's studies and, and not having started the, you know, the one-year Bible plan 20 times and always getting through Genesis 1, at late, like just totally new. God, would you let us hear your word and be amazed anew? And I want to focus on that God and God alone. And then I want to walk through the text in a pretty quick fashion. Um, I know that's plenty of verses. It's going to be one of those where we're going to do the notes in line so that we can understand the nuances of the language. And then we're going to go from this place equipped and encouraged to serve others in whatever context God gives us um, so that we can grow weary and then come back again next Sunday to get a fill up so that we can grow weary and, and keep pushing to him. So here we go. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the, uh, that were above the expanse. I'm sorry, the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day we're going to go on into chapter two and thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation Y'all, that's just amazing. I'm sorry. Like, I have trouble creating something out of Legos. And God just simply says, let there be. And he crafts such complexity in an early young world that what we see now is the fruition of all of that diversity that he coded into everything. Like, I mean, when's the last time? Not to, not to, I like how Jared Baird put it since he's not here. Um, he said, you know, I have this tendency to like kind of keep thinking on something and then I like, then I kind of beat a dead horse and then I just kind of stare at the horse for a while and then I kind of kick the horse again. All right. And, uh, and he is, he's a thinker and he's an overthinker and, and I don't want to be uh, an overthinker and I don't want to beat this point to, to where we miss it, but when did we cease to be in awe that there's a God who can speak all things into existence? And when did that cease to be enough for us? So, in the beginning, here's the, the main point of, of, of everything. In the beginning, God and God alone. Like, that's where our attention and focus needs to be in Genesis chapter 1. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to get into the nuances uh, of the text, which I think we should, because God breathed these words into existence for us. So, we need to see those. But, but the thrust of expository preaching is that the text must mean to us what it meant to the original hearers. We need to wrestle with that. And it's this. The Genesis really shows us that in the beginning there's God, and that's all there was. He took counsel with nobody else. He didn't need our advice and our wisdom that we try to offer him in our prayers. I don't know if you ever do that. 
But I look at the Genesis 1-1 God, and I'm in my prayers, I'm like, God, by the way, if you could consider, he took no counsel from anybody else except himself. He needed no other agency because there was nobody else. There was no one else. There was no other mechanism. There was no scientific process that was going on that God said, ooh, now I'm going to use this to my advantage. There was simply the counsel of the Godhead, that three-in-one mystery of the Trinity. That's what existed before absolutely everything. There's, there's verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Okay, so if you can picture the, the creation being a void, then whatever we picture as the void before any of creation, like whatever it is we can picture, this is what blows my mind. Anything that we can picture before creation is still our understanding from creation of what that was like. God was before anything that we could ever imagine, think of, or dream of. Like to say that God has always existed should not be a comfortable thought. It should not be something that we can rationalize. It should be something that honestly, in a good way, now that we've been redeemed by Christ, it should absolutely terrify us that there's a God that big. And we just kind of whistle through it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we just kind of go along and it's fun for kids. But it's humbling for you and me. Everything about who you are. Why do you exist? What is your purpose? Why are you here? Where did this come from? God. That's it. But mankind is, mankind's always been searching for a few things. And we know this. We've always been searching for, for who are we? What's our purpose? Or why do we exist? And what happens when we die? That seems to be the, the great search of mankind. And we see all these different religions because they're all searching for those three answers. Where did I come from? What's my purpose? And what happens when I die? This is the answer to everything. This is the best answer in the world. Like we know what happens when we die. Scripture tells us it is appointed to everyone to die and then the judgment. And then for those of us who've been redeemed by Christ, our judgment's already been paid on his bloodied, beaten back. He cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And though we were not there in history, we were there in every sin and it's all been visited upon him. The wrath of God poured out on him on our behalf. Judgment has happened. So therefore, for us, we delight in the peace we have. That should cause us to sing louder. If we are apart from Christ, then there's hell. We know what happens when we die. But who are we? And why do we exist? All right, so church, who are we? If, if there's God and God alone, then who are we? Who is man? We are a creation of God. That's really humbling because watch what that actually means. It means that we are the created and not the creator. It means that we don't get to call the shots either. It means that whenever we like to live life like this, Genesis 1-1 calls us back and says, no, you don't live life like this. You live life like this because this is his rightful place. But there's this great humbling, and yet I have found myself living so foolishly in such a short-sighted life making my decisions for today and for my pleasures and not realizing that there's a majestic God who looks down on us and who created us. Like all of this exists simply because he wanted it to. There should be such gratitude. But who are we? Whenever people ask and they're searching for that, we know the answers. We're the created. Do you know how freeing that is? 
You don't have to make your life happen. God created your life. We don't have to, to, to create all the, the pleasure and the joy that we need for eternal life. He's, the crea- He's God and we're not. There's a great relief that should settle on your soul. You are not the God of your life and you were never meant to be. We were meant to be in humble obedience to who He is. We are the creations of a completely wise God that creates and sustains all things according to His own counsel. I know what Chas is doing. She's like, I'm going to write this down and I'm going to give it to you next week. But we do need to be reminded of that. We are not God and we were never meant to be. We were never given that status. So you know what? We can, uh, we can disagree over how long the Genesis day was. Plenty of debates, plenty of scholars, plenty of people wasting a whole lot of time. We can, we can disagree over that, but we must absolutely accept that he is God and we are not. That's the heart of the Christian. Why do we exist? And I know you probably want something so much deeper than what I'm about to give you. And it's simply this. We exist because God wanted us to. Find it in scripture where it's anything else. Genesis 1.1. Why did he create man? Because he wanted to. Andy put it this way whenever I was talking to him. He goes, you know, it's almost, not in a, like a disrespectful way, but it's almost like this whimsical idea of God. Like he needed nothing. And then he's just like, I want to create something. And then he just begins to create. But you and I exist because God wanted us to. That's really humbling. He didn't need us to. There's a, there's a false theology out there that says that God was lonely and so he created man. There's nothing in scripture that says that whatsoever, by the way. When you read that book, that's when you can mark out those lines because that's bad theology. So there are a lot of theologians out there. Remember, I just tell you that there's a lot of bad theologians. So yes, we exist for his glory. We exist uh, and we're, we're to have dominion and, and uh, we're to worship him. But really all of that is an outworking that we're here because God and God alone determined that he wanted to make us. That's enough for me. Like if he wanted me to exist and live, now what do I do with what he's blessed us with? That becomes the extension of the Christian life. I'm not going to make you you turn there this time, but listen to to James chapter 4. It takes on a whole new context uh, whenever we preach this a a few weeks ago, but it takes on a new context in the light of Genesis 1-1 that that God and God alone determined that we should live and that he's the creator, we're the created. And so James, in light of all that, says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a a town and spend a year there and, and trade and make a profit. I know y'all remember this sermon perfectly, right? Okay. And yet you do not know, James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay, so if y'all can, like imagine what it would be like not to be sitting here in an air-conditioned cafeteria and, and we're juggling the chaos of, of what it meant to get here this morning, but what if you were the Israelites and, and you've trekked, you've seen God manifest himself through the plagues and you've walked through on dry land, the Red Sea that's been parted 
and you're in the midst of the wilderness and, and you see the mountain and, and it's on fire and it's trembling, it's wrapped in smoke. And this is all like in the Old Testament and, and you're the Israelites and you're trying to figure out really, okay, but who is this God that has done all these mighty and powerful things? And then you, you are in that state and you begin to learn that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you begin to understand that the God who's working so mightily and powerful is a God who spoke all things into existence. Like be in that moment of what that would have been like. We're so familiar with scripture sometimes that we've grown numb to the amazing things of God. So may we always stand in awe. There is one God and he didn't consult us about anything. The overwhelming reality of Genesis 1, y'all, is this. That God and God alone is all that is needed for any and all of existence. This is a God of great magnitude. And all of it begins within the beginning, God. Nothing else. But there was another beginning, another in the beginning. Do you know where we're going with this? You should, because we've preached it. And I know you memorize every single sermon that we preach here. Y'all, this is, this is really cool. Go to John chapter 1. So New Testament, John chapter 1, verse 1. There are two in the beginnings in the Bible. Usually if you say in the beginning, most people say God created the heavens and the earth. But there is a beginning that predates that beginning chronologically written far after it, but it comes before it. Before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What was there? There was John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So you know what came before, what was everything like before God created everything? There was God. And everything that was made was made through him and for him. And all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and then in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's two in the beginnings, and John 1 predates into an ancient context. Y'all, this is... Before the void and the darkness of this new creation, there was God the Father, there was God the Son, there was God the Spirit, the richness of the Trinity. They existed in perfect unity. So here is God who is the Ancient of Days, as one song calls him. That's a really cool. He's the Ancient of Days. He, y'all, is the Endless One, and He's the Eternal One. There is no beginning, there is no end, and He breathed life into us. And He knit us, you and I, together in our mother's womb. And then in Christ Jesus, Ephesians tells us that he recreated us in Christ Jesus, that we are his workmanship. I, I just think that's really cool. Sometimes I look at your face, I'm like, they don't think it's as cool as I do, but I do. I think this is amazing. I'm having fun with this text right here. Y'all, I, you, I have no problem that we're about to walk through the text. I have absolutely no problem proclaiming the sovereignty of God in all things because he has been sovereign from the beginning. Is the main point of this that I'm trying to get to. From the beginning, God has called all the shots. He's exhibited all power. He's done whatever he wants according to his will, whenever he wants, from the very, very, very beginning. There's a mystery in why he does what he does. That's not ours to figure out. Rudyard Kipling, I can't remember if I put this in a sermon or if it's just been in my prayer life here lately. Rudyard Kipling wrote um, 
charge of the light brigade and there's a quatrain in there and it's a soldier speaking and he says ours is not to question why ours is just to do and die and that's the charge of the christian life we don't get to question the unquestionable one who stands against all of eternity we do what he says and we die to ourselves and we push on because he holds all things together so I have no problem with his sovereignty because he's always been sovereign. Whether I say he's the king or not, he's the king. Whether I say he's sovereign or not, he's sovereign. Whether I believe all the nuances of the text or not and that he really did create or he didn't create, it doesn't matter. He did it. He doesn't need our approval or our acknowledgement. He is God and we are not. And he doesn't take counsel with us. This is why in Psalms chapter 2 it says all the nations rage in vain and God sits in the heavens and laughs and causes derision for them. So I'm hoping that at the end of Genesis 1 there's just kind of this swelling, this renewal of oh my goodness this is that God. And here's what sin in our lives will do. It will take that God and it will start to funnel it right back in here. And we have to keep pushing back. That's why we need reminders in scripture that there is a high, holy, all-powerful God who does everything whenever he wants to. Who cares if you like it and I like it. There's a part in Genesis chapter 1. I will share it with you. I don't like something in Genesis chapter 1. God doesn't care. Okay? It's about the diet and what they ate. They needed meat. (laughs) Totally joking for people who don't know me. (laughs) why do I keep hammering that y'all because there should be such comfort for you when you read about that God I want you to find comfort because it's that God who's going to get you through whatever hard dilemma you're facing right now whatever whatever point you're at in life where you can't piece it all together and you don't know how God's going to bring you through it the God who is the God of Genesis 1 that all powerful high and exalted God he's the one who moves all of existence. You don't have to understand how in the world he can sustain and renew something that is so broken and hurtful. But he can. If he can speak stars into existence, as the psalmist says, if he can breathe out stars, then he can carry you through whatever valley you are in. So there's a great comfort for me. You and I, absolutely limited. And he is without limit or restraint. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, I, I do want us to, to walk through the text. I'm not, this is not a word-by-word word breakdown here, okay, because that would, that would um, that I, I, I don't have the strength to do that one. But what I, what I think will be helpful, and, and this should be noted, in expository preaching, it doesn't mean word-by-word, verse-by-verse breakdown. It just means the text means what it was meant to mean. It's everything's kept in context. So that's why we'll be able to do like Genesis 12 through 15 still in an expository fashion. Um, So what we're going to do is sometimes we're going to read a couple of sentences and I just want to add a couple of notes so that we get it, um, so that we're equipped by the word, the word can sanctify us, we're empowered, and then we can use that to to lead others closer to an understanding of who he is. Um, And sometimes it's going to be like a couple of sentences, sometimes it's going to be like six words, but just going to keep trekking and I'm going to go fairly quickly, um, I think, and any notes, any additional notes, then um, you have to buy me coffee. And, and I'll, I'll do that. Um, you probably will hear that I do have a, I would say this at the beginning, I do have a doctrinal, um, preferential conviction. <laughs> I'm trying to put all that together. I have a conviction of, of, of days and what days mean here. Okay. Um, I think that, that my view is scriptural. 
I think that it's scientific. I think that it's rational. You're probably going to hear it. Um, I'm not trying to push any preferential conviction there, but what I am trying to say is this makes sense in the context of how God has put his word together. But I also want to say that I think that too many lines have been drawn over. It's got to be this. Absolutely. And if it's not this and it's going to be this and if it's not this and it has to be this and you can't be a Christian if you believe this way and you're doubting all of Scripture because of this. And there's so much fighting whenever I think the point was simply that God created all things. Now, do I see it one way? Absolutely. If we disagree, you know what? If you hold to Christ as the redeemer of your life and you cling to him and he is your only source of salvation and hope and strength, then we have no qualm really with one another. I mean, I think you're wrong, but I think that we can sit there and we can worship together and we can drink coffee. I drink coffee with a really good friend and, and we have two different views of what this looks like. And yet we both agree on what's absolutely core. And I just pray for him. All right, here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. Y'all, so the Hebrew description for this, just so you can kind of picture it, means that it was a wasteland. It was absolutely desolate. Um, utter desolation is how MacArthur says it. Um, a formless, barren state. In other words, it's not this. This is not what was there. And even if you take away the trees and, and the things that we say are created that we see in the account, this, is, this doesn't work. This would be like if we send a, a probe into outer space and they discover a dark planet that's completely primordial. There's no, no semblance of anything like what we know. It's just this rocky, watery, barren land with no light or anything on it. That's the closest that we could probably come. But that's the, the idea. The, the language in Hebrew is that it was barren, it was desolate, and it was shrouded in darkness and mist of some sort. Like This is a fun like imagining right here. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the midst of that dark, formless world, God was hovering. You know what's really cool? That the Spirit that was hovering over uh, the, the dark and formless void and that would begin to create everything is the same Spirit that now resides in you and me. Like what he did in creation, he has done in his recreation of who we are. Okay, I think it's really cool. And his name in these verses is Elohim. Like that is his formal God, one true God name, Elohim. All right, um, I'm not going to go into the nuances of that, that word, but if you look it up, then there's actually some really cool things that go with the name of Elohim. In other words, he's the all-powerful. Like that's the highest thing I want you to take. Um, and he's the one who is writing these words through Moses. And that God says, let there be light and there was light. Okay, so what happens in the darkness? God speaks and there is. That is the paradigm of all creation. God speaks and there is. Now, what is this light? Because later there's going to be the sun and the moon and the stars. We don't know. Theologians are still trying to figure that out. We don't know. I take great rest in, in Revelation, though, it says that there will be no sun, for he will be their sun. There is like, we're, we're just used to all of creation as we see it. That's why I want to walk through this. This was not creation as we know it. He created all things that are right now so that we can know it. And Romans says that we will be able to see all of creation and know that there is a God. But the creation that we're reading about right now is not quite there. There's just like some sort of light eminence, and then there's darkness. And you know what's really neat is this actually sets up a really interesting time sequence. Because now that there's light and there's dark, you'll see that there's going to be a pattern. Um, 
God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was, now look, because there's light and darkness, there is evening and morning. And he always says there's evening and morning, and then he gives a day. So there's a passage of time, right? How do you and I know that even if there's no clock or, or watch on our wrist, nothing that's indicating time like the clock back there? I told Andy, clocks are just kind of, you know, guidance systems in a sermon. I don't actually know what that time really means right now. Uh, I am trying to move as quickly. It's just a rich text. Um, so I, I really am trying to be mindful of that. But, but you and I know that even if we take off the watches and the clocks and, and all power fails, we know that a day has passed because there's been morning and evening and there's been a cycle that God establishes at the very, very beginning. Could Moses have been wrong? Yes. But God is recording things as the Spirit moves him along. How does this all fit into the mystery of all that exists? I have way too many other things to worry about than trying to figure that part out. I just know that God created all things, and I have peace with it, with it being as it is. Now, this is good to know. Day there, the word day is yom, Y-O-M. So there's your Hebrew lesson for today, yom. Uh, yom can mean an extended period of time. Or it can mean a literal 24-hour day. can mean both, hence the confusion that many have. My understanding of the Hebrew language, which is coming from other scholars, and I read this too, is that whenever an ordinal number is used in conjunction with the word yom, it absolutely designates a 24-hour day. So if it just says, and it was a day, it was a yom, then it could have been interpreted either way. In Hebrew language, whenever you have the word yom with an ordinal number, first, second, third, fourth, sixth, seventh, day, yom, then it denotes a 24-hour day. This is a fun fact, okay? You, you pray through where God gives you peace to stop on that issue. Um, but I do think it's good to know that, that God did clearly say that there is a beginning and end to each of these processes of what he is creating. Okay, so verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Some, some translations say a firmament. In the midst of the waters, let it separate to the waters from the waters. And so what's going to happen in verse 7, God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were under from the, water, from the waters that are below. And so there's a separation of waters. He creates the sky and the atmosphere. That's pretty cool. Like what we see right now, what we walk out to, the clouds that fill our sky and that we see swirling around the globe and the rain that's going to fall for the next seven days because there's an 80, 90 percent. But we live in Arkansas, so it might not rain at all. But that water vapor that exists in the firmament, he created, he separated on this day. He created the sky. And um, then there, so that'll be important whenever we get to Noah. And, and do you know why he did it? Because he's God and he wanted to do it that way. And we keep going. He called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we see that formula again. There's morning, there's evening, the second yom. All right. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. And so he begins to gather and then dry land appears. So there was no dry land in the original creation. It was a water world. Really cool. Especially once you get to the New Testament, whenever it says that there are those in the end who will come and they, um, in, uh, this is, they intentionally deny the fact that the, water was, or that the world was created out of water and was deluged again in water. So according to scripture, it was water until God collects all the land and he calls this land, he calls it earth. Why does he call it earth? Because he's God and we are not. But it's just been a water world. I mean, that's absolutely amazing to me. 
And so whenever God floods the world and he sustains Noah and um, Noah and his family, God is returning the world to what it originally was before land came up. I believe in a worldwide flood. I will make no qualms, no mysteries about that one. I believe in a global worldwide flood. It makes everything else make sense. But God is returning everything back to the original creation and then he's going to restart. But he brings salvation through the ark and Noah. And Jesus is the greater Noah. That's the different sermon. Okay, so we see now we're in verse 9. Um, so I'm going to keep going from here. Um, look, at, look at verse, I'm only going to hit this one time. In verse 10, the, the last seven words, and God saw that it was good. That is the refrain over and over again. And that is why we hunger and thirst for that. Because we know that it was good. As Christians, we know that it was good. God's put that within us. And we know that whenever he comes to redeem us and to, and to bring the new heaven and the new earth, we know that it will be good. And that's why we long for something. And that's why when things break apart, there's, there's a yearning in us that's been there from the beginning. God saw and made everything good. One day he will redeem it and he will, he will put us there, but, but just not yet. We're in the not yet right now. Okay, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. This is important. And fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Okay, so as we think about creation, he created a mature creation. Whenever I'm thinking about Adam and Eve, I'm going to start there because I'm just go for the logical thing of what he's saying here. Whenever you and I picture Adam and Eve, we don't picture little kids typically running through a garden. We tend to picture mature adults that he's given this task to to be fruitful and to multiply, right? So there's a mature Adam and Eve. He created a mature um, image of him in, in male and female. That's what he's doing here too. Um, I don't think that, that the new earth was, was just like little sprigs everywhere. I think God said, let there be. And then there's a lush, rich creation all throughout, already bearing the seed within them. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken, right? The egg was within the chicken. Like this is not a philosophical question we need to debate. Did the seed come first or the tree? Scripturally speaking, the tree. And then it dropped the seeds. Well, where did the seed come from? It came from God, right? He builds in a richness to his creation that we cannot match. We can't think of the complexity of how he coded DNA in the early times to account for all the diversity that would be here today. Okay. All right. There does seem to be a mature creation that he creates. Um, there also seems to be that phrase, according to its kind, which I'm just going to kind of hit here. According to its kind, he seems to limit it in this way that the dogs will be dogs. They can, I'm okay with what's called microevolution. There's macro, which is the theory that in evolution, everything came from this one, um, one amoeba uh, over here, and then it, it became everything else. That's macroevolution. I'm not okay with that, okay? The, the banana did not become a dog. That's macroevolution somehow, okay? Microevolution, though, is that God created a diversity of living animals in, in each fish. Like, he created the, the, the fish, is gonna, it can evolve in a micro sense and still be a fish. 
Like, it's still a fish. It's each according to its kind. The dog can evolve, and it can change over time. I read a really cool article the other day where they have found evidence that there was a saber-toothed tiger that roamed in America that was big enough to take down rhinoceros. That's awesome. I believe it's there. I believe all of that truly happened. I believe that God has microevolution in place, but the cat still is a cat. It's a form of a cat. The cat does not become a pair or vice versa. Right, so I'm okay with microevolution. I totally am at peace with that. But we do see that all throughout. And I think that God's word has been very kind enough to say each one according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind, all throughout his creation. All right. So apple trees will produce apples, not bananas and not monkeys. Okay, each according to their kind. We say that in verses 12 through 13. And look in 13. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. There is morning, there is evening, and there's the third yom. And all was good. And we see in verse 14, um, again, I'm trying to be so mindful of your time. Um, the light source, he actually forms. And now there's a sun and there's a moon and there's a star. Cross life. Tonight, it would be hard to see, but the next starry night, go stand and look up at the stars again. God placed them and he names them. Like just staying in awe of that. The psalmist says, when I look at the stars in the heavens, whenever I see the handiwork of who you are, what am I? There is a great humbling whenever we look at all creation through a God-focused lens. Goes on and says that these are to be signs for seasons and for days and years, and they're lights in the expanse of the heavens. And so he creates the stars. And in verse 18, they're to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from the darkness. And so there's that really humbling thing that the psalmist says that God breathes out the stars. So whatever your imagining of God is, if he in your mind is not big enough to breathe stars out of his mouth, then he's not big enough and he must be bigger. But don't just use like the speck of stars, like actually YouTube stars. And be reminded of how massive these things absolutely are. And God breathes them out so, so easily. Beyond verse 19, there was evening, there was morning the fourth day. This is the pattern and that there is time on the primordial earth. You know where time came from? God created it just like he created everything else. But the primordial earth that was nothing like what we know it to be still had a pattern of time that God's word records. And it's absolutely easy to believe that whenever you keep in mind who God is. It does go on in verse 20 to 21, talks about the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, which the waters swarm and every winged bird, each one, quote, according to its kind. Every time God creates something that has the breath and the life and life within it, it's, a, it's created according to its kind. You can underline that all throughout. It's an interesting study to, to understand what that means. I think it's fascinating that it's Anything that has life, there's a limiting factor that God put in his scripture. Don't know what we do with it all. Um, Gavin and I have this joke that there are some things that we're going to ask God one day. And, and I, I really do. I want to be like, can you show me? Like, can you hit rewind? And just like, let me see what this looks like. And I think that we will be absolutely blown away. Verse 21 continues, and God saw that it was good. God blessed him. He told them to be fruitful, multiply. And then we see another cycle in verse 23, another cycle of morning and evening and another day, another yom. And I, I just believe that the language that the Holy Spirit moved Moses, Moses to write to demarcate days, I do think it's important um, because it brings about the mystery um, that we see all throughout Scripture. God says, let there, let there be living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth 
according to their kinds. And it was so. God speaks all the creatures of the earth into existence. Um, and I, you know, I believe there are so many wonderful creatures that we, will, we never will get to see. Like we walk through an aquarium and I'm amazed at what I see because they're just weird creatures. That, and, and Chaz finally, she had that moment. We were looking at an octopus and it, was, it changed its colors and it's like climbing up a wall. And she looked at me at one point and she goes, and God created that. I don't know if it was disgust or awe in that moment, but, but I, 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 the, if somebody says, well, where were the dinosaurs in creation? They're right there. Like there's, there's a richness of his creation. We're still discovering new creatures. Like we're still discovering new planets out there that God just simply said, look what I can do. And there is, a, it's just he has this vastness in his creation. So as you look at an animal and it looks absolutely weird and bizarre and it looks like nothing else, like a seahorse, you know, like it looks like nothing else. And you're like, what does that even mean? And God thought of it. And he was just like, seahorse. And there it goes. Like, that's amazing to me. I think there are so many wonderful creatures, each according to their kind. And I believe that many of them have died off. In verse 25, God made the beast according to their kind, livestock according to their kinds. And skip a few words. And God saw that it was good. In 26, then God said, let us. Note the word, us. God did not say that I will make God in my, or I will make man in my image. Who's he referring to? He's, this is our very first glimpse of the Trinity. Like the mystery of the Trinity that we can't wrap our heads around in the New Testament was there at creation. This is one of those where all that we believe really is rooted in Genesis. It's all there. Like whenever you just pause and you look at the words, let us make him in our image. And um, so in the beginning, Jesus was with God and all the Trinity was active in creation. Jesus was actively creating those people and those things which are the things that are active that were created that he's actively creating those things which are ultimately for him like he created all things and all things are for him all right so i do want to look at this let us make man in our image this is my really the the last big point everything else will will go pretty but i'll just read you what i wrote let us make man in our image after our likeness this does not mean that we are made to be god's but when God chose to make man, he decided, God decided to place on man the responsibility and the honor to reflect and project the glory of God to the rest of creation. John Piper says that when God created man, he created him at a 45 degree angle so that what is of God in heaven reflects off of man to the rest of the world. But when there was sin, we reoriented and, and that, that image of God in us no longer is reflecting truly. This is, should be the life of the Christian. We should be living life at a 45 degree angle so that when people see us, they see the glory of Christ in us. That's New Testament scripture right there. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. God making his appeal through us. Okay, so we, John Piper says that man was created at 45 degree angle so that when Adam looked at Eve, he saw the glory or the image of God in her. And whenever Eve looked at Adam, she saw the image of God in Adam. There was such a redeemed, perfect state that early man and early woman created perfectly the glory of God to one another. We messed it up. Humanity messed it up. God did not mess it up. Okay, so what happened with the fall is that 45 degree orientation changed and we lost that pure projection of God's image in us. His salvation in us is what moved us from reflecting back to one another to reflecting him again. It's how dirty is our mirror, right? Because a dirty mirror can only reflect and project so much. I'm gonna go, 
This also means, this is the most important part, an important part for me. This also means, though, that humans bear an important dignity that is clear in Scripture. Mankind in its entirety has been made in the image of God. All of mankind, the born and the unborn, the poor and the rich, the sweet and the offensive, all of mankind has a special dignity because we have been given that by God and by God alone who created everything from nothing. And this very God-given dignity is why justice matters. It's why injustice matters. It's why life matters. It's why missions matters. Because wherever people exist, they bear in them the image of God and they are worthwhile reorienting back to God. So the tragedy of our fallen world is that we were made in the image of God and yet we continue to pursue idols apart from God. But we pour everything into everybody else because they bear the image of God. He goes on and says, we're going to let us give them dominion over the fish. So, y'all, we've been given dominion. There's, there's a purpose. They, work was part of the original creation. Like we now more than ever in our culture, we need to redeem the idea of work. It is a God given design that was an early creation. He made man and woman and he put them in the garden. He said, work and enjoy it. The fallen world doesn't take joy in work, but one day we will. I see in the new heaven, the new earth, the kings are bringing in their spoils to the gates. Like they've been working. They're bringing in their first fruits to the king, the king of kings. So I believe there's going to be a redeemed state of product of productive work in the end. Why? Because it was in the beginning and he restores all things. Man, I'm okay. We normally don't go this long. I promise. Okay. I'll go long, but I don't think we normally go this long. But I just, he says, um, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Scripturally speaking, God created humanity as male and female. And both of those genders are made in the image of God. Okay, so listen to this. While there are different roles different strengths and different weaknesses, there is absolutely equal dignity. That needs to be something that the church grasps. That seems to be something that marriages grasp. That there, Though there are different roles, and we see that in Scripture, different strengths and different weaknesses, there is absolutely equal dignity created by the same God with the image of God on them. Okay, um, they are to be fruitful, multiply. They're to have kids and families. They were to subdue and have dominion. I'm going to um, be honest because I, I, I got to take you there. Verse 29, and God said, behold, he's saying this to, them, to Adam and Eve, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. I have a problem with the Genesis diet because there's no meat in that. All right. It's but but original creation, there was no bloodshed. You get that? Like they're to eat the vegetation and the fruit that he gave. And then in verse 30, to every beast of the field, every bird of heaven, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, he's given green plant for food. Original, redeemed. Oh no, I'm sorry. Original, pure creation was on a vegetarian diet, it seems. Yeah, probably no Oreos. As Andy, theologian here says, that it's in the fallen world that we get to eat meat. All right, so the redeemed, we don't know what the diet will look like, but uh, that was the only time in my studies where I was like, oh, come on. Um, but anyways, I wanted to point that out to you. But, but that's just good to know. His creation is different than the creation that we would have made. And it was good. 
You know, the first bloodshed in the Bible isn't going to occur, get this, until Adam and Eve sin. And they realize that they're naked and they try to use leaves to cover themselves. We see this in, in kids' books. What does God do? He clothes them in animal skins. Where would he get animal skins? I get he, pro- he could create, but, but I believe that there was bloodshed at that moment because that's where his grace and mercy is going to cover them after the sin that will derail all of creation. So the first glimpse of God's grace and mercy as a result of sin is that he's going to clothe them. And that's whenever there's, that's, it's just really actually a, a beautiful image. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was not just good, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. So creation's done. The history of the universe, everything that has been created in an orderly, majestic fashion by God and God alone. Adam and Eve didn't contribute anything to that, nor did you and I. Right? It's just, it's done. And then God rests. This is not from fatigue. This is really, he's resting from his creative work. He didn't have to rest. He has infinite energy, infinite creativity. He kind of just looked at everything and goes, it's very, it's, it's exactly as I want it. I'm not going to add anything else. So I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to rest from creativity. That's the, the, the language of it is that. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Notice that he had done over and over throughout. Okay. So God rest, or he blessed the seventh day. Um, and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Because everything was done and everything was very good. And this is what will ultimately become the Sabbath. Okay. Listen to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and there seems to be a recognition in Scripture that these were six straight legit days. This is in the law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to, your Lord, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, your sojourner who's within your gates. Listen to this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Scripture refers to itself. But that's that, that day whenever he rests, that's what would become the Sabbath day that's in the law. And so again, all the, there, there's so many roots tied into Genesis 1.1. So y'all, here's, here's at the end of the day, what do we do with this, Ricky? I hope that we are equipped and encouraged today by what Genesis 1 calls us back to. That there's a God who is not like us. Praise the Lord. That, that there's a God who had order uh, and he brought order out of chaos. Praise the Lord that he can do that. And that this is not a God who needs our input or advice. He didn't say, pray to me and give me your input and advice. He said, pray to me and cast all your burdens and all your praises on me. So when we read Genesis, I I pray that we never cease to be amazed at this old story, right? Whenever they make the children's book, they they leave a lot out. But I know that took a while. Thank you all for for pressing in the word, not for me. Uh, I know why you do it. You want to know the word too. It was a long message, I know, but, and each one's not like that, but there was a lot of context setting in it too. We're going to pray and we are going to sing our final song of reflection. And then we will go from this place ready to make disciples wherever it is that he sends us to go. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we read Genesis 1-1 and realize that, that the God who created the world, thousands of years later, you would step back into your world, take on flesh, condescending to us, 
bearing our sins and dying on the cross in the world that you spoke out of nothing. The people who should be bearing your image, crucifying you to a cross. You are that endless, eternal, unending, unfathomable God who stands beyond everything and the mercy and the grace that you show us. Oh God, they're worth singing about. They, they bring us such peace. Well, Lord, I pray that you keep this view of you ever before us because there is such relief and peace and we have our Sabbath rest in Christ because you are God and we are not. Help us to trust you more and to live lives for your glory, not our own. Praise our Son's holy name. Amen.